welcome to Haunted by Proxy. I'm Landon. And I'm Joey. This week's story is called What the Nanny Saw. We met under inauspicious conditions when he dropped an ice cube down the back of my bathing suit at the beginning of that summer. Already soaked from intermittent cannonballs into the community swimming pool, my one piece deftly formed back to my body around the cube, making it almost impossible for me to retrieve. I was forced to spend a minute in agony as the spot where it slowly melted, burned with cold, faded into numbness, then warmed with the sun back to normal. I hadn't had time to ask him why he had done it, as he had disappeared under the water almost as quickly as he had run up to my towel, where I laid face down and committed the crime. Seventh grade would be over in a week, and for most kids in my grade, this mandated trip was a last chance to see friends that would be separated by three months of family vacations and Bible school classes. I still hadn't exactly gotten the hang of how to broach the topic of friendship with anyone, and so, apart from the archetypal girl groups that would include me through osmosis as they passed by on their way to better acquaintances, I swam and ate my snacks alone. I'm not sure if Peter had had a sudden urge to tease me, or if he had planned it that morning, but I was only vaguely familiar with him until that afternoon. That night, All I could think about was him, and when my mother asked how the pool had been, I blushed. It's strange, the awkward self-taught courting rituals that children have. He and I hadn't spoken a word to each other that day after he teased me and then ran away, yet I smiled bashfully and told my mom, I think I made a friend. We lived in a small bedroom community where every kid in town had a mental map of each other's houses. On the first day of that summer, I rode my bike to his house, pulled up onto his grass, and looked up at the second-story windows with my fists on my hips. Momentarily, he walked by his bedroom window and saw me. We both froze for a moment, and I regretted my bravery. But then, we both smiled. We spent every day that summer together. In fact, we spent many summers together. I had ideas of what it might be like to get older and go through the trials and tribulations of dating life. Now, those ideas can change vastly between 14 and 20 years old. But I never felt I was missing out on anything outside of Peter. We spent our formative years watching our growing friend group live their lives as singles and in various stages of relationships. But it only made Peter and I feel even luckier to have each other. We were married at 21. I loved him without end, but the die had been cast then that would lead to my unending misfortune. For the next 21 years, Peter and I were as close as two people could ever be, yet there was an undercurrent to our every breath that left me terrified. Because under the regular dates in the city and the parties hosted at our home, I felt completely and utterly alone. I knew Peter loved me, but something had shifted. We would sometimes spend hours on the couch together, reading, watching TV, or answering email, yet there were never advances made that led to any intimacy. 
The late nights with friends often included people I didn't know and had no idea where or when Peter had become so close to these people. A lot of the time, they would also call him by his middle name, Mark. I had never known anyone to do this while growing up and it unsettled me, to be honest. Maybe I was being overly sensitive, but it seemed as if he felt more comfortable with these people who referred to him by a different name, like he didn't want to be Peter in their lives or his. Then there was his last name. He had insisted that there was no reason I should feel the need to take his last name in marriage. We both held progressive views and never spoke much of religion, outside of the gentle pokes we would take privately at our neighbors, who more than once let us know they couldn't believe we were only allowed to say happy holidays these days, and that they would still be telling people Merry Christmas for as long as they were allowed, thank you very much. With this being the case, I hadn't really thought one way or the other on changing my name, other than out of societal standards. I felt no real connection to my last name, but his, Jacobson, was so inoffensive that I didn't fight his suggestions to keep my name intact, but I never quite understood his reservations. There were more things here and there over those two decades, but who would expect any marriage to be without its troubles? Maybe I was in denial, or maybe I was so afraid of the truth that I was living in a dreamlike state. After 21 years, Peter finally woke me up, you could say, and he took everything away with him. My inexperienced view of divorce in the past was that it came on like the end of any relationship, just with more to lose. Like the eventual funeral of a loved one, you knew that it was somewhere in the future. Though not exactly sure when or what the final moments would look like, you were vaguely aware in the back of your mind that someday you would have to face that moment, knowing all the while that the marriage you had promised each other would one day break. But you would have your friends or your therapist to talk to, or even each other, looking for closure on a midnight phone call from your new separate lives. But when it happened to us, I knew instead that divorce was an earthquake, and that every marriage was a house built near a fault line. You hoped for the best and told yourself your home had been built to weather the natural rumblings of the earth from time to time. But an earthquake was an earthquake, and when Peter suddenly turned our home to rubble without so much as a warning to me, I surveyed the wreckage only to discover that the framework had been rotten the entire time. Peter sobbed as he told me he was gay, but he sobbed with a smile. I crumbled to the floor as the man I had dedicated the rest of my life to as a young woman freed himself. It was the worst day of my life, and I had never seen him so happy. I was never mad that he was gay. I was mad that I was losing my future with a wonderful partner. I understood all those friends now all those men he would invite over, who he was probably so ashamed to give his real name to when they were together without me there. I wanted to hate him for it, no matter how deep into the throes of depression I would find myself in. But I could only be happy that the man I loved was truly, finally happy. With the divorce came even more reality checks. Pete had provided for us since I was old enough to drink. I had aspirations of becoming an actress in my younger days, but then again, who didn't? 
Now, I was a woman in her early 40s with nothing to my name. I was starting from scratch at the midpoint of my life. Months went by as I looked for work, feeling the guilt mount every time another spousal support check came in the mail. As I feared a mental breaking point looming over the horizon, I finally accepted a position. Though I had never become a mother, and at this point probably never would, I felt that I could at least use my experiences from childhood to take care of someone else's children, at least for a while. I accepted a position as a nanny. The house was a grand estate on the outskirts of town. Surprisingly, having lived here all my life, I was not aware of the manor before the day I was driven up to its massive door. I met the maid of the estate first, Martha, who welcomed me with all the warmth of a Catholic nun. She was a good person, mind you, but it was clear she lived dutifully to the owner of the house, Mr. Sheffield. He was not there when I arrived, and it would be quite some time before we ever met. He had taken on a new line of business that caused him to almost exclusively be away from home, which was where I came in. Martha was too old with too many responsibilities to be adding nanny to her job title as well. The children met me warmly, though it didn't seem to be by choice. Maggie, Brighton, and Grace had grown up attending their father's gatherings and had all mastered the art of feigned interest in Hollywood handshakes before any of them had turned 12. Over the next several weeks, I got to know each of them more and more. Their empty gestures became genuine. As we grew to be kindred spirits, both trying to find our paths forward regardless of our age differences. As the summer gave way to fall, the three of them returned to classes, and I was left mostly to my own devices. The job listing had asked for someone who would be able to stay on the grounds for the length of the job, and I found myself wandering the seamlessly endless halls of the ancient mansion when I wasn't helping Martha with tasks that called for a helping hand. Each day I seemed to stumble upon a new door or an unfamiliar hallway with furniture covered in plastic, portraits of long-forgotten ancestors hanging from the walls, or bathrooms that probably hadn't been used in my lifetime. So much life had once happened here, and now it was just a time capsule, sterilized room by room, day by day, by the maid. On one late afternoon exploration, I realized the kids would be returning home from school. Already? I asked myself. Time felt almost arbitrary in the manner sometimes. Nonetheless, I began my routine of retracing my steps to make it back to the main foyer of the... I... I froze in my tracks. As I turned the corner into a particularly bare hallway, I noticed a wooden cabinet placed crookedly up against a wall. It struck me as quite odd, as I had not seen the piece of furniture on my way down this hall just minutes ago. I noted this because of the angle it had been left in. Martha had made sure everything in this house was always in its place, yet here this stood, completely carelessly diagonal near the end of the hall, right before a staircase. Even I would have fixed it had it been like this before. I approached the item with curiosity and caution. It was made of oak, stained dark, and it glistened as if it were just recently polished. I immediately noted how dense it felt so heavy that it seemed to be bolted to the floor. My fingertips traced the ornamental detailing, noting the decisions a woodworker had made probably a century ago. 
as they designed and created the body and legs and drawers. The drawers. In that moment, as I caressed the bronze handle of the top left drawer, I felt a ruinous curiosity. Not until this very breath had I wanted to open anything in the house that wasn't mine to open. And yet something in me said that this was mine to open. I grasped the handle. Franz Dresser, don't touch that. The sound so startled me that I felt as if I'd been shocked by lightning. I released my hand and turned to see Martha glaring at me. She didn't seem mad, but instead scared. I felt a rush of embarrassment, as if I had been caught in the act of some heinous crime. Then came confusion. How did Martha know my full name? I had only ever told her my first name, Fran. I asked her, but she tilted her head. What? She responded by pointing to the furniture. Fran's dresser. I stared at her. That's my name, I said. Martha took a second, but then there was clarity. Oh, no, dear. This dresser belonged to Fran, the original owner of the house. It's Fran's dresser. I looked back and forth at them, still shaken by the whole event. I wondered why no one had mentioned to me that the first owner and I had shared a first name. But I realized it wasn't such a big deal and brushed it aside. I was just Fran, the nanny, and that was fine. Martha motioned for me to step down the hall with her, away from the dresser, and I obliged. This is going to sound peculiar, dear, but I've lived here long enough to know that it may as well be true. I listened intently. Fran's dresser is haunted. Oh, don't look at me like I've gone crazy now and just listen to me. You will find this dresser throughout the house, not a similar one, this very same dresser. No matter where we drag it or hide it away, it always comes back. There's nothing we can do to stop it, and as of yet, there hasn't been reason for us to need to stop it. It will be here long after we've all left, just as it's been here before us. But the reason why, it has been passed down that when Francine died, she placed an item in one of its drawers, the very same drawer you tried to open. We think whatever she placed inside holds a piece of her, and now she and the dresser are intertwined, watching over the estate forevermore. No one is to open that drawer. If they do, their life will be unchangeably ruined from that moment forward. There was a moment of silence. Then I let out a laugh like I hadn't laughed since Peter and I were married, a sound he had always teased me for. <laughs> but Martha knew I didn't find it funny. No, I was terrified. We both turned back to look at the dresser, but it was gone. Over the subsequent days, my thoughts lingered on my new reality constantly. Not only of the dresser with a ghost apparently inhabiting it, but even more so my unconscious magnetism towards the dresser that I had known nothing about. Why had it called to me? 
What had been left in there that nobody was allowed to see? It overtook my dreams, and I searched the house every free hour hoping to glimpse Fran's dresser just once more. I even had irrational wishes for what was inside. Maybe if I opened it, I would find love once more with the children's widowed father, Maxwell Sheffield. Or maybe even better, I would finally feel happily divorced, if only for just a few changing seasons more. I couldn't be only a nanny forever. I had to know. Then, a few weeks became months, became years, and slowly it was a strange memory in the back of my mind. Yet I stayed at the job, never moving forward or saving up enough to plan on leaving once the kids no longer needed me. I heard of Peter's life through the grapevine, but rarely if ever heard from him directly. I no longer had a best friend or a life I was happy of. It took three years from that first run-in, but then, when it was finally out of my mind, Fran's dresser finally appeared to me again. On a cold night, after one in the morning, as I was walking back to my bedroom after tending to a creaking window pane, I saw her, and I wept. I thought not of Martha's terse warning or of my terror. I needed to know, and I would not be held back by superstition as my life could be no worse than it was now. I approached the dresser and grabbed the handle. I felt that our first names being the same was no longer a coincidence, but a calling. Slowly, confidently, I opened the drawer. Inside of the drawer was no blast of light or a tainted soul, or letter to Satan. No. What lay inside was a ring. I stared down at it, wondering why generations hadn't just opened the drawer to remove the item and be done with it. I felt a sense of disappointment, stupidly thinking that this dresser would answer all of my questions. Then I picked up the ring, and it felt familiar. An inscription on the inside read, Thanks for the ice cube. Yours forever, Fran. I gasped aloud and dropped the ring. It was Peter's. I had had that joke inscribed there when we were planning our wedding. But how... My past flashed before me. It took the wind from my lungs. Somehow the dresser had led me to it. My luck had been tainted ever since the day at the pool. The dresser wouldn't ruin my life after I opened the drawer. It had known I was always going to open it and had ruined me years ago. I couldn't have chosen a different path if I had wanted to. I was always going to be here in this moment, weak, finally seeing the consequences of my wishes to see what was inside. I had caused everything bad to happen before I had even chosen to do so. I... I looked up, and the dresser was nowhere to be seen. I waited for hours, stiff, thinking of the years it had taken to get to this moment. I would not wait that long again. Morning came, and still I stood there. 
The kids left for school and it grew quiet. Some time later, Martha walked by and looked up at me. Haven't seen you for a while. Thought you'd finally gone. I tried to answer this supposed jest by stating that we had just spent the past evening together in the kitchen, eating leftovers over the counter and laughing about gossip from the town. But nothing came out. Martha didn't wait for a response either. She laughed quietly and kept walking. I tried to turn to her, but I couldn't move either. Fran! Martha called away from me. I'm off to a doctor's appointment. I'll be back this afternoon. Why was she acting this way? I was right here. She had just talked to... I caught a glimpse of my reflection in the window across the hall, and time stood still. I saw not myself, but a large, dark piece of oak furniture, sitting alone by itself in the hallway. And I knew why I could no longer speak or walk or feel time move by. I was no longer the nanny. I was no longer me. I was, and am to this day, Fran's dresser. The end.